lot of times we have people here who are authors and thinkers, and um, it's a rare treat for me when we have someone that's a, that's a real doer, and we've had a few of these kind of master crafts people here, um, and uh, I think there's, in this case, it's e an even rarer version of a master crafts person who is, um, who's both uh, young as well as uh, very well um, studied in fields that, um, that are, seem very es esoteric in the world now. Um, but uh, Brittany Nicole Cox has uh, a set of skills that really nobody else in the world has and is working on uh, is working on kind of machines that are similar in ways to the the 10,000 year clock that I've been working on, and I've always been obsessed with automata. And she was able to kind of craft an educational system to build a way for her to do this in her life, which is a a rarity in and of itself. And so I'm super excited to have her here tonight. Welcome. <laughs> The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Howdy. Um, as you know, my name is Brittany Nicole Cox. I'm an antiquarian horologist, so I specialize in the uh, conservation and restoration of antique automata, mechanical music, complicated clocks and watches, and mechanical magic. Um, it's really amazing to be here at the Long Interval because uh, many things about this project uh, ring true to my personal values and the things that I try to carry forward in my work. So I'm going to be sharing a bit about my work with you. And um, just to get started, this is a more complicated example of what got me into this field. simple, but you have this incredible music that's just being generated by uh, basically these steel tines that are tuned to a particular note that are then being plucked in a sequence that's been programmed to play you a song. Uh, when I was a kid, I collected a lot of these, um, but my journey kind of started a little bit earlier. Uh, that's me and my dad working on the car. At least I thought I was working on this car. Uh, you can see I haven't really changed much. I'm holding a screwdriver. Um, as time went on, though, I kind of started to upgrade my tools, right? So here, this is a, a small depthing tool. So these come in various sizes, and when you work on a mechanism, you have to make sure that all of the wheels and a gear train are poised and they mesh perfectly together, and these come in a, a variety of sizes. So you have some for watches, some for, you know, uh, carriage clocks were a little bit larger, and then some for even larger clocks, like long case clocks. The tools get quite complicated. To work on the types of objects that I work on, you have to have a large variety of these things, and they are just as beautiful as the objects themselves and really just as delicate. 
So this is a balance spring scale that's on the left, and what it actually does is it measures tiny screws that are part of the balance which oscillates at a certain rate. And so when that little video played, you could actually see the balance rotating. This is a fusy engine. So before we had reliable spring steel, you actually had a fusy engine that was uh, used to generate a cone that basically would um, act as a, as a balance to the energy of an old spring, which was not reliable. So basically, as you, as you wind a spring up, the, the power that it can supply will change based on how it unwinds and how that power is distributed through the mechanism. So you had to have a specific tool to cut cone to match that power curve. This is a staking set. <laughs> Each one of the stakes in this tool are actually different and used for a different purpose. And it's funny, you, you sometimes need multiple sizes of all of these stakes just to do one job, um, and sometimes you'll never use the same stake twice. This is a wheel topping tool. So this is for actually correcting worn gear teeth. You can actually cut gears with this as well if you have pre-cut blanks. So these are just to give you an example of all the different tools, a few of the tools anyway, that are necessary to do the type of work that I do. You can obviously get a little carried away. So this is one gentleman's shop. Um, it was 5,000 square feet where he had stockpiled this stuff over 30 years. And everything in here he used at one time or another. That's the other floor. So what are we using all this stuff for? Uh, really horology, right? So when I said I'm a horologist, this is really just the study and measurement of time. Uh, historically, units of time were defined by movements of celestial bodies. Oop. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, so sun-based, the year was the time that it took for the Earth to rotate around the sun. The moon, the moon was based on the moon's orbital period around the Earth. Earth-based, this was the time it took for the Earth to rotate on its own axis. Celestial sphere based, as in sidereal time, where the apparent movement of the stars and constellations are actually used to determine the length of a year. With all of this, right, and different types of um, mechanical devices to calculate time came opportunity. So, mechanisms made to measure time could also be used to create moving figures, possibly giving us some of the earliest marriages between art and science. This is a page from the treatise on fantastic devices invented uh, by Muslim scholar Al-Jazari. He was a mechanical engineer, artisan, artist, and mathematician. This elephant clock was especially intricate. Every half hour, the bird on the dome whistled. The man below would drop his ball into the dragon's mouth, and the driver hit the elephant with his little stick. The Met has this dated between 1000 and 1400 AD, though some sources date it at 1206. Salisbury Cathedral, this is a pretty common clock a lot of people know. Hmm? Don't know why that's playing. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, this is said to be the oldest working clock in the world. Um, other clocks from the 14th century, uh, in which the mechanical clock first throughout Europe, there were some in uh, Rune as well as Paris, um, Dijon. And all of these, though, have either been lost or destroyed over time, or substantially modified. So this is the oldest one that we know of. The Wells Cathedral clock might have actually been made by the same craftsman as this particular clock, um, but is usually dated around 1392. This is actually relocated in the Science Museum in London, and it actually operates there today. This Prague astronomical clock uh, may be the most well-known astronomical clock in the world. The oldest part of this clock is from 1410, although we do have records of clocks preceding this piece. Besides a Chinese astronomical clock from 1088, we have very few clocks in Europe that actually date from the mid-14th century. 
Wallingford was a clockmaker who actually did a lot of different clocks, and he had what was considered a large astrolabe-style clock, showing the sun, the moon's age, phase, a node, a star map, and possibly the planets. In addition, actually had a wheel of fortune, an indicator of the state of the tide at London Bridge, and bells that rang every hour, the number of strokes indicating the time. These clocks illustrate that one of the many impulses in their development had actually been the desire of astronomers to calculate and investigate celestial phenomena. So I'm basically taking you through a brief history of these things. I'm kind of excited to get you to the more, what I feel are the ex exceptional parts of horology. But the history of watches began in 16th century Europe. So this is where basically watches developed from a portable spring-driven clock, which appeared in the 15th century. Now this was due to the invention of the mainspring, where I was showing in that tool earlier, the Fusey generating machine. Now that was actually created in order to calibrate basically the springs inside of these. So here you have a Fusey. You can actually see the Fusey. Um, let's see if you look there. There's a cone there at the bottom. That's actually what that tool that I showed you earlier generates. But in addition, about the same time, we actually have time finding its way into the church, or really rather that church found its way into time. We have clocks that regulate prayer, but we also have these pieces that were actually made to um, mechanize prayer. So this is a very interesting piece. This is a penitent monk, this automaton, when wound, would actually glance left to right, it would open and close its mouth, nod its head, eyes gazing at the cross each time, and it moved about 20 inches forward on a flat surface. So this is actually the act of mechanized prayer. This piece was um, commissioned by King Philip when his son took a tumble down some stairs. And in an effort to uh, convince God to save his son, he said, God, if you grant me a miracle, I will grant you one in return. And when his son healed, he commissioned the uh, court clockmaker to actually create this penitent monk so that he could go on running his kingdom and have this prey piously for him. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? You're really busy. You're a ruler. You have a lot to do. Just wind this guy up. You're good to go. <laughs> This is actually quite a long clip. <laughs> so, horology, though, was not just used for prayer, but actually also to frighten churchgoers into penitence. This is a 16th century devil automaton that still resides in the Applied Arts Collection in Sorfresa Castle in Milan. This was actually a groaning, bobbling demon. So when a churchgoer would enter the church, this, uh, this torso would be situated so that you know, someone hidden could actually wind this crank, which would generate this horrible groaning sound created by organ pipes, and a waggling demon head would pop up and scare you. I mean, it, it went past making groaning demon heads. You actually had these uh, mechanical grottos and heavens and hells where people would make pilgrimages to these places to actually pay homage to these things. The more pious you were, the more likely you, got, you were to see these kinds of things. One of these was known as the Breton Jesus, and it actually would uh, roll his eyes around in his head. He had blood flowing from a wound in his side, and there were women at his feet, you know, gesticulating quite upsettedly, while a trinity with shifting eyes would stare at onlookers. 
So meanwhile, while the church is using these types of atonementa, we actually have transatlantic travel, transoceanic travel growing in its significance in the 17th century. So obviously the importance of reliable navigation at sea became an issue. So scientists had been working on this problem for quite some time, but in 1714, the Queen Anne Act um, was used to try to get people to calculate longitude at sea. So latitude was relatively easy, but longitude was not. This was solved by John Harrison, uh, who is a clockmaker, who actually created this particular piece, which is H4. This is the world's first ship chronometer that allowed us to calculate longitude at sea reliably. And then about the same time, we actually had the development of the pinned cylinder. This began in the early part of the 18th century. So at this point, we were actually able to start creating automata that enacted the tasks that previously they only appeared to perform. This also led to the first instances of mechanical organs and carillons. So this is a, a really interesting piece because we have this, this piece in 1723. Uh, clockmaker Charles Clay begins employing the pin cylinder in, these, in his organs. And what's on the right is actually a, a document. This was a, an actual piece of sheet music that was written by uh, George Friedrich Handel, who it's believed wrote songs, 10 songs, for Clay's musical clocks. So what's most interesting about these particular pieces is the fact that this was the first instance, perhaps, of recorded music. It allowed a musician to generate songs that previously were not capable of the human hand. So if you think about it, you only have 10 notes, you have 10 fingers. If you create an organ that has 28 pipes, you have 28 available notes. So here we have Handel creating these beautiful pieces for mechanical organs. same time as that. We have all this stuff kind of developing simultaneously. These were three automata that were created in the 1730s. So this is right around the same time that that organ clock was made. This is made by Jacques de Vaconson. He was um, more of a, a philosopher and a scientist than anything else, but he became very interested in anatomy after meeting a surgeon. And he created these three automata that were the first automata that we know of that actually could perform acts that previous ones could only simulate. So he had the pipist or the flutist that was on the left. He had the uh, drummer on the right and the notorious defecating duck in the center. <laughs> Very interesting, yes. <laughs> so the flutist may have been uh, one of the most complicated of these three. He actually had lips that flexed in four directions. He had lungs that could play at three blowing pressures. He had fully articulated fingers so that he could actually make contact with the flutes. But 
what was interesting was Vaconson struggled with how to make the contact so that it actually, the finger sealed over the aperture of the flute. So he actually covered the fingers in real skin in order to make the contact. It was said that people ventured from all over to hear and see these pieces play, and you could even bring your own flute for this flute player. So the duck, though, is probably the most famous. Um, it flapped its wings and cavorted very duckishly, but its main attraction was that it could swallow bits of grain and then excrete them in a changed form on the other end. This was mostly, uh, most likely achieved with food coloring and maybe breadcrumbs or something, but it had over 400 moving parts in each wing alone. Unfortunately, none of these automata exist today. Um, these were the last, the last of his work is actually what forms the Museum des Arts Métiers in Paris, France. I really highly recommend going there. Uh, what's quite interesting was that this model, this was a later model that was made, this has also been lost. But it was uh, Robert Houdin, who I will talk about later, that owned this duck and revealed that it was a fake. So not long after Vaconson gave up on making automata, a Swiss clockmaker named Jacques Droz ended up making these three pieces here. So we had the writer, the draftsman, and the piano player. Jacques Droz was also responsible for our first uh, instances of singing birds as we know them today. These three were made in about the 1770s. And then at about the same time, we have my very favorite automaton in history being made. This was produced in 1773. This is supposed to have sound. So this swan has three mechanisms. It has a mechanism that produces the effect of the water, where these contra-rotating twisted glass rods are moving, which actually simulates the reflection of water itself. We have the carillon of bells, which plays music, and we have the neck, which actually extends down and allows the swan to gobble up and swallow up one of his fish. So this being made in 1773 was another one of these golden age, beautiful 18th century automata that went on to inspire later generations. Continuing in this vein of wonder, we have Robert Houdin. This is the gentleman who revealed the defecating duck to be a fake. So he did many things. Um, not only was he uh, an incredible clockmaker and magician and also invented the mystery clock, he actually was hired by the French government to put down a rebellion. So his magic was so good, um, they hired him to go out and pretend to be a sorcerer, and he basically saved France. So not many clockmakers can put that on their CV. Yeah. What's most interesting is the fact that Robert Houdin was the son of a watchmaker and had planned to be a watchmaker, but actually went to law school. And while he went to a bookshop to collect a two-volume set on law, he was mistakenly given a two-volume set on magic. And <laughs> the world was never the same. Uh, he ended up moving into Paris and marrying the daughter of a prominent clockmaker, and his time there uh, really re basically totally redid magic. He, he's considered the father of modern magic and was the first magician to incorporate mechanical devices and clocks using electricity into his shows, which was uh, definitely a result of his work as a clockmaker. One of his most famous tricks 
uh, is this mechanical orange tree. This tree toured all around Europe and is quite one of the, the most uh, beloved tricks, I think, in, in magic history. This is a, a recreation. Maybe. Not playing. Well, this is a recreation of one of his most famous tricks. The, the leaves uh, would start to play. move. There we go. Okay. So this mechanical trick actually had real oranges. So this was a, an orange tree that was kind of left on of stage in the background. Uh, this is a clip Absolutely from the Paul gorgeous. Daniels magic show who's displaying the tree here. But what would happen is Houdin in the course so of his magic show would take this, some article or item from an audience member and then he would vanish it and it would be lost during the course of the show. But as the show went on, and this was all perfectly timed, the tree, it would begin to bloom tiny white flowers. And then eventually, you would start to see these oranges that would begin to appear from inside the tree. And these were real oranges. So what Boudin would do is he would take them, he would cut them up, and he would actually pass them around as you know, party favors to audience members during this performance. But as the evening went on, Very sharp knife there. He's taking from that's Debbie. She's considered a national treasure of England, his assistant. <laughs> but that top orange would open, and as it did, you would begin to see this handkerchief that was carried by two mechanical butterflies. And attached to this handkerchief would be the item that had been vanished during the show. So thereby the victim <laughs> would get their precious item back. So not only did Houdin um, inspire a lot of firms to actually go on and develop other mystery clocks, but he also inspired uh, the very famous Russian goldsmith, Peter Carl Fabergé. So Fa Fabergé was the goldsmith to the Tsar, Nicholas II, and took much of his inspiration from masterworks of the past. So this is his version of the Houdin orange tree. This is known as the Bay Tree Egg. This is from 1911. So instead of having the handkerchief that carries this piece with the butterflies, it actually has a singing bird in the center, which is also a homage to um, Jacques Edros, who invented the singing bird. Here is none other than his tiny silver swan automaton. This actually came in another one of his beautiful eggs. He actually had 52 of these eggs that were created by Fabergé for the Tsar Nicholas II. He had a standing order of two of these every year, so there was one for his mother and one for his wife. This beautiful egg has matte lilac enamel, it has this swan that sits in a bed of uh, aquamarine with all these beautiful little flowers. What's probably the most surprising thing about this mechanical swan is the fact that it is actually made of gold and then plated in silver. <laughs> How's that for an Easter present? <laughs> and this is from the year 1906. When Peter Carl took over his father's firm, uh, there was definitely this move to, from producing jewelry to producing kind of artist jeweler type objects. So this particular one was the peacock egg. Um, don't know if I mentioned this, but his mother got all of the mechanical ones. So this was this beautiful peacock 
that certainly had to have been influenced by another older artwork. Since the Fabergé firm was actually also the keepers of the objects inside the Hermitage, they looked after and repaired many of the objects within the, the collection there. This allowed Fabergé to go and study all of these older pieces and build replicas and different pieces that would um, pay homage to these masterworks of the past. This required the skill of many individuals. So it wasn't just Fabergé, but uh, he employed many different people. So goldsmiths, silversmiths, a lapidary, an enamelist, stone setters, as well as a mechanic to engineer the devices. But this is quite the complicated little object. Walks along a table, raises its tail, and it spreads its feathers. This is not unlike the peacock clock that was also designed by James Cox. So the inventor of the silver swan automaton also created this mechanical peacock clock. This was commissioned by Catherine the Great and it arrived in St. Petersburg in 1781. It took the mechanics 15 years to reconstruct this once it arrived at the Hermitage. It is the only large automaton from this time that actually remains intact today. So if you see this clock, you're really staring right back into the 18th century. It's virtually unchanged from when it was installed. So we have horology, creating all these beautiful objects of wonder and opulence, but also being used in modern science. So at the same time that Fabergé is creating his beautiful peacock egg, we have World War I, and we have mechanical devices and detonators in our explosives that are you know, obviously being used for war and destruction. So many of these were manufactured by the main watch companies, including Bulova and Timex. The same engineers that were making those devices are the same ones that were manufacturing, calibrating the devices to detonate our first uh, examples of human-made existential risk. So we have the detonation of our first nuclear bombs, also being part of this horological lineage. This is 1945. This image from the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum shows Apollo 11 in 1969. The Omega Speedmaster on the left was actually the uh, aviation or pilot standard right for our astronauts. So this is the watch that every astronaut wear, wore when they went to the moon. It was later instrumental, I believe, in Apollo 16. Maybe there was 14 seconds that this watch was used to save the mission. And what's interesting is also during Apollo 11, we had the electronic timer on board malfunction during the landing. And what was used to save them but this very simple mechanical timer that worked in six minute and six second intervals. Horological mechanisms that were once used to detonate our bombs are actually now what are being used in our nuclear fail safes. So this is a small watch-sized mechanical device that was uh, produced in 2011 and is now the larger safety initiative um, that's basically a part of our safety protocol. So this little mechanical safe arming detonator is an extremely intricate nuclear safety component that actually prevents accidental detonation of our nuclear bombs. And moving on, we actually have right now, since 2015, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has started to develop a clockwork rover for Venus. So this rover is all mechanical and is based off of Charles Babbage's adding machine as well as the Antikythera mechanism. This was conceived by um, an engineer named Jonathan Sauter. He's a mechatronics engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And the idea is the fact that 
basically electronics will not work on the Venus surface. Obviously, the temperatures are really too extreme for any type of electronic device to function. So what has to be done is to try to solve this problem mechanically. So we have this age-old technology solving rocket science problems. So why is all of this important? And what is my role in all of this, right? So you've got this timeline that kind of demonstrates how a lot of these objects um, have been used for some of our most beautiful and some of our most um, terrifying uh, pursuits within, I think, our, our, <laughs> our endeavors as human beings. And so my role um, within that is that I like to think of myself as a, you know, if I only could think of myself as Robert Houdin. This is a clip from when I went to the Magic Museum in Paris. So very excitedly revealed myself as Houdin. Um, my job as a, as a conservator and a horologist is actually to preserve all these things, right? So these tiny objects are so delicate. These little pieces uh, are about the size of my pinky. This tiny bird has maybe over 30 pieces in it alone. And this little bird is part of a singing bird mechanism. So when I go in to work on something like this, uh, I'm, my first priority is actually making sure that the object uh, stays as true to historic, its historic values or its properties as possible. So for example, if there's a thread in this piece that is stripped, I will not put a new modern thread or a new modern screw in there. I will actually get a screw plate from the era from which this piece was made and uh, remake the screw using historically accurate threads because this was made before screws were standardized. So here is this tiny little mechanism. And there's our little protagonist, our singing bird. And each of these pieces are really different. <laughs> that one I call panic attack. <laughs> He's very quick. They all have these really specific personalities. So basically each one, though, though many of them were produced in a series and produced by the same firm, none of them were really the same. The parts are not interchangeable. So you can't have one and change things from one to the other. And even the song and the way that it's feathered and the way that it behaves is really a reflection of the craftsman that engineered it and made it, made it by hand. This is another one, my favorite. What's making the sound? So inside, um, you actually will see a video that's a little bit larger, which will explain it all to you. But basically, it's a, a bellows and a slide whistle with a plunger that goes in at a, a depth that's programmed, that's predetermined by a cam. So we were actually pretty obsessed with um, reanimating dead things. Right? So um, not only were we using skin on flute fingers, but we were taking real birds that were taxidermied and then stuffing them with clockwork. So what's interesting about this is that we have this beautiful scarlet tanager that is you know, still alive long after all of its family and counterparts have moved on. This is a, a piece that I actually did here. I made this bird from scratch. It's not a stuffed bird. <laughs> Individual feathers have been applied.
So there you can see the bellows. They're pumping there on the left, and then you have the slide whistle, and you can see there's a plunger that's moving in and out at a rapid pace. This is all dictated by these toothed wheels, which are called cams. And basically, the cams uh, are telling that, that plunger how far to go inside the whistle bore. And then at the same time, you have a release of a valve, and that's causing the trill of the bird. So that's where you're getting the and then you get the like that. This is an interesting piece that I worked on for uh, the National Trust. This was in, Anglesey, in the Anglesey Abbey National Trust House in the United Kingdom. This actually was from the Forbidden City uh, Museum there in Beijing. This had been owned by one of the emperors. And what's really interesting about this piece, and what's interesting about all of these pieces and these examples that I'm showing you is that each one is quite different, and the ethical considerations that we give to each piece are quite considered. So, this is an interesting example of a fusion between um, basically Chinese engineering and English engineering. So we had this original mechanism being made in London, um, and it was also made by James Cox. So the gentleman that created that Sterling Swan as well as that Peacock clock made this clock. Now, this has two mechanisms. It has a simple clock mechanism that's used for telling the time, and then it has a more complicated automaton mechanism with bells and such for playing music and governing the movement of the different figures on this clock. So what happened was when it went to, it went to Beijing, when it went to the Forbidden City, the emperor decided that it didn't play fast enough. He didn't want the Western music. So what he had his clockmakers do was to actually remove the original springs and put much larger springs in. This made it run much faster. So we ended up having something that didn't quite sound like it did when it left here. And probably what's most fascinating about that particular piece's journey is the fact that the people at Anglesey Abbey that had visited and seen this clock play got so used to hearing it and seeing it play in this modified state that when it came time to do the restoration, they decided they wanted it left as it was. So the National Trust decided to leave it in an altered state, which actually long-term was detrimental for the movement. Um, so we had to do some creative problem solving with that. This was a tiny automaton ship that I worked on. This was made in 1810. It was made as a Battle of Trafalgar Memorial. So this little piece, when it came to me, was actually silent, and it has a musical component. It also was not working. And there was nothing to really tell me what type of object this was, when it was made, or how it should look. So there was a lot of kind of research and things done to figure that out. Uh, I ended up deciding that it should have a case for the pocket, so I made this case out of sterling silver. This is made out of sterling silver sheet that was formed and then soldered together. And in order to rectify the problems within the mechanism to get it to play again, I made this little barrel to test the different sizes and shapes and angles of pins that would normally cause the steel comb to resonate. So like that music box that we saw on the first slide and how the pins would actually pluck those resonating steel tines, 
This should have done the same thing, but when the tines were contacting the comb, nothing was produced, no sound, it was silent. So I made this little barrel and used different sized and shaped pens and eventually discovered that the pens had worn down and they had originally been shaped at a very particular angle in order to be producing the sound. So once that and a bunch of other stuff was resolved, I was able to get the piece working. And here it is in its little box. It's very quiet. About 400 hours worth it all, just for that. <laughs> that's, I guess that's my point. These things are so time-consuming, and they require the utmost attention to detail if we want to treat them right, and we want to honor their history and our heritage. Another difficult problem. This was a smoking automaton. So imagine you know, you're alive in 1870. You're an older gentleman. You retire to your smoking lounge with your scotch in the evening, and you know, your wife isn't interested in having a cigarette with you. That's fine. You've got this guy. So <laughs> you would take your automaton. Uh, you'd wind him up. You'd put a cigarette in. You'd light his cigarette. You'd light yours. And the two of you would smoke together. And if you know much about smoking, um, you know that that's probably not the best for your health long-term. Automata actually suffer the same fate. So uh, for me, my, my job here was to figure out, okay, well, what can I do to prolong the life of this automaton? Because this is made of pretty delicate materials. We have paper mache, we have textiles, we have these organic materials that degrade naturally over time, right? So basically, any intervention to this object would cause damage to these materials, which become more and more fragile every day. So over a lot of time in research, you can see um, I basically rectified a lot of the aesthetic problems. But in order to rectify the problems with the bellows system, which are the most vulnerable material within this, because it has the direct exposure to smoke, I built this machine. This machine was made to smoke three cigarettes at once. So each of these bellows is covered in a different material and uh, exposed to cigarette smoke at the same time. And basically, after cigarette exposure, I then tested to see which material would last the longest by testing it to destruction. So basically looking at the chemical structure, its chemical bonds. So here's the machine. I smelt like a casino after this. No one wanted to be around me. So everything about this was calibrated so that it would run at the rate that the automaton ran um, and would produce a good puff. So you know, I wanted to get a material that was really going to give you a lot of bang you know, for your puff. And once I figured out which material was going to be the best, here he is, doing what he does best. So here he's been finished with his hat and hair and a very fine mustache. What's a gentleman without his monocle? 
So I also work on silly things like this. <laughs> this is a bubble-blowing bear that um, I nicknamed Buford. Uh, here he is, you know, hear ye, hear ye. Watch me now as I blow these bubbles. And this is just a, a clockwork mechanism with the bellows inside again. So instead of smoking cigarettes, there he is blowing bubbles. But sometimes, you know, solving these problems and getting so excited about the work, um, this is the first time he was working after getting him going. <laughs> Which there was supposed to be sound for that one. I don't know if I should replay that just for the factor. You know. I do love my job for moments like that. But these things were made to delight people and make them happy. Um, what I love so much about them is that there was no other motive. This is a magician automaton. So this guy did a very simple trick. He basically just vanished a little rat and turned it into a cat, which unfortunately I don't have a picture of actually what that looked like. But this is to kind of get you back into this idea of using mechanics for magic. This is a magician's pocket watch that I worked on. So I can't tell you how it worked. Magician's code, I would have to kill you. But basically what happened uh, was that the magician could you know, read out the time from the stage. And he would say, you know, currently the watch is you know, 12.47. And he would hand it out to an audience member. And he'd say, you know, close the watch. Don't look at the time. I don't want anyone to see what time it is. Now turn the crown and set the watch to any time. So you know, the person, they'd get there and they'd turn the crown. He'd say, okay, once you're satisfied, you know, open the watch, push the button, and tell me, uh, or don't tell me what time it is, I will tell you. So then he says, you know, I'm divining that it's 3.17. And the person would verify, well, yes, it's 3.17. He'd say, okay, now ring the gongs. So this little watch actually is a repeater. So it has a lever on the side that allowed the person in the audience to pull it. And when he would do that, it would actually ring out the time to the minute, thereby proving that the magician could divine what time it was. This is another one of my favorites. I did not work on this. Um, but what I wanted to share about this one is the fact that this little box uh, has questions that you would actually put in, these little tokens in the side, right? And when you would ask the question, the magician would consult his books, you know, and look around and actually reveal the answer. And what I think is most interesting is the fact that today, these questions are still very, very relevant. So what's the most fleeting thing in life? Love. What is something that people trust in universally? Money. And what offers the greatest consolation but time? Because everything passes with time. This is uh, John Gaughan. So John Gaughan uh, is what many people call the magician's magician. He has worked in magic since he was quite young, producing magical illusions for people, magicians. And he has a workshop in LA. I went to visit him because he has an incredible collection. This is Philippe. He is a magical peacock that can pull an ace from a deck of cards. I don't know how he works, but if only someday I could get my hands on Philippe. <laughs> it's a very short clip, but you can see he's very elegant in his movement. 
Uh, another one of my mentors is Philip Peck. So these are people that today um, are really my inspiration. These are the people that I hold up as uh, the best and my mentors and the type of work that I do. Because even with all the time that I had in school, um, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm still learning every day. You know, I've spent over 10 years in school and then worked independently and I still don't know everything and I don't think I ever will. So without people like this, um, I certainly wouldn't get as far as I am now. This is Philip Peck. He's a master goldsmith and horologist. He lives in uh, Pennsylvania. This is a beautiful loop that he made called the collector's loop. It has a watch mechanism in the top with a guilloche dial. And we worked together. He helped me create this original artwork. This is a piece that I made in 2018, which is a part of a series based on medieval bestiary manuscripts. So this is kind of a mashup of all of our you know, strange uh, thoughts and desires in our history and philosophy. So this little piece um, is basically a, a homage to this history that I described quite briefly earlier. But here he is moving. So I created him as kind of a, a homage to the lineage of horology in the same fashion, you know, that uh, we have Fabergé creating things. Uh, I'm, not, I'm certainly not Fabergé, but um, this idea that you want to pay homage to these greater folks in the lineage of your of your trade or your craft. So this little snail um, is a is basically a, a homage to the, this combination of nature and the machine. So uh, we have early philosophers like Descartes saying, "I know no difference between the bodies that nature makes on its own and those that the craftsman makes." So here we have a mechanical snail who has a, a, a shell, which is a perfect mathematical ratio found in nature. So it kind of is this idea that, you know, God is a mechanic as well as a, a you know, a ornamental turner and um, a mathematician. He kind of just wanders around, <laughs> pops his head out, and he moves in a figure eight pattern. This is another one of my mentors. Uh, this is Ifem Shargaratsky. He is what I would call a master bird mechanic. He is a really incredible person. He spent over 10 years trying to build the most complicated thing in horological history without having any prior experience and he's doing it. Um, this is actually an original piece from the uh, Paddock Fleet Museum. Um, or perhaps this was in an auction actually at Christie's, but there is a pair of these in the, in the Paddock Fleet Museum made by Rochat. There are over 1,000 pieces in this pistol alone, and it's basically controlled by six mechanisms that act together to produce the effect of the bird popping out of the pistol. So it's everything we saw in that bird box, basically laid out linearly. This is David Lindo. He is a clockmaker in Pennsylvania as well. So three of these geniuses all together in Pennsylvania must be something in the water. But David is building uh, rose engines. So rose engines are uh, basically these incredible machines that use mathematical principles and sine waves to generate uh, geometric patterns in three-dimensional or on metal. 
So this is the MADE lathe. The MADE lathe is an incredible example of this because it is the only machine of this type that can actually perform all of the functions that the machines of the past can in, it, in one. So it does fixed tool turning, live tool turning, and uh, guilloche, which I haven't really explained what all of those things are, so hopefully maybe someone will ask me. <laughs> Uh, Al Collins, one of the principal designers of the made lathe who worked with David Lindo, um, is generating these crazy barrels using uh, basically whatever found materials he can to try to recreate a lot of the shapes that we find in old ornamental turnings of the past that we don't know how they made them. So here is one of his test pieces using one of those barrels. Al and I also did this coloring book. So this is a coloring book of 88 engine-turned patterns as a way to try to get this information to the public that wouldn't normally have uh, an engagement with these patterns. This is one of them. It was drawn by the chalk robot. I feel you know ornamental turning is one of these critically endangered crafts, but it also has a relationship to magic. These are ornamentally turned uh, vanishing ball cup tricks. Here, this is also in the collection of John Gone. And here on the left, we have an ornamentally turned piece that was actually laser cut. And on the right, an original that was made by a king. It took a king 12 to 18 months to make one of these pieces alone. Can you imagine a king sitting in a room with candlelight, you know, using a foot pedal or a hand wheel to create this? And now we can print one or cut one in five minutes. So guilloche is kind of the ancestor of that, right? So this is this uh, geometric engraving on metal using sine waves, using the mathematics. Um, I teach classes in this. So what's pretty interesting about this is the fact that Tristram Duke here is a light refraction scientist. He's actually a holographer. So he studies scratch abrasive holography, and there he is talking to David Lindo. I wanted to introduce them to find out if they could produce uh, basically a mechanical apparatus for a Rose engine that would allow the user to create a hologram, a scratch abrasive hologram on the machine. So you can see this is one of Tristram's test pieces. This is a piece off of my machine. Here's another piece off of my machine and another one of Tristram's pieces. So when you shine a light above this, you actually get a three-dimensional shape that rises above it. Each line is actually producing a point of light that creates some image. And here's Tristan studying the light off of one of Al Collins' boxes. And here's one of his holograms. Here's another one of Al Collins' boxes. Here's Tristan's test pieces. Okay, and I'm out of time now, so I'm going to end with this really whimsical <laughs> note here that Tristram. Uh, who believes, again, scratch abrasive holography is the ancestor of guilloche, which is the ancestor of ornamental turning of kings, which is the ancestor of mathematics in Greece. Wow. Um, he used it to create this Millennium Falcon hologram, right? So actually, if you go out and buy the Star Wars LP, you can have a tiny Millennium Falcon rise above your record as you put it on a record table. Okay. Crass course in horology. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, that was lovely. Um, and uh, I think the, what is 
especially great to hear is not only kind of your trajectory in this, um, but also seeing some of your mentors. And I mean, as, as you see from your mentors and what I learned when I started doing uh, clocks, the 10,000 year clock is the first clock that I ever worked on. Um, and the, but the, the field is basically a bunch of old guys, um, <laughs> retired, you know, semi-engineers or self-taught engineers. Uh, and it's so refreshing to see people kind of getting into it for new reasons. Um, and so it's, it was really great to read the original article um, uh, about you on this and, and to meet you. And today we went to the Musée Mécanique, um, my friend Dan Zielinski's space. If you guys have never been there, um, we just got the chance to spend about 30, 40 minutes down there, but it's down at Fisherman's Wharf, which I know no self-respecting San Franciscan ever goes to Fisherman's <laughs> Wharf, but you should go to the Musée Mécanique and uh, get a big handful of quarters. Um, and I'm just wondering, what, you, what were your impressions of seeing um, these kind of automata in, um, in ready, ready use with just quarters and a bunch of random people? Well, I mean, I think that's what they were meant to be used for. You know, it's, um, it's definitely, you need a balance between just treating these as historic artifacts that aren't meant to be used and then actually engaging with them because this is what makes people care about them. So it was really fun. I was really excited to see them all working and see people you know, getting excited and putting in more quarters and playing those old tunes. Yeah, no, there's, uh, and I asked a question I've always wanted to know the answer to is how they made the little, those barrels that play the music that have all the pins in them. And uh, you gave me about a five minute answer that I was not expecting. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was pretty impressive. There's very, probably very few people I could have asked that question to in the world that would have uh, actually known the details of that process. So it was, it was really cool. Um, now, I wanted to get a little bit more about um, how you, how you found this and why it spoke to you, why you wanted to do this? Well, um, as a kid, I collected music boxes and kind of any objects that followed rules. So I liked springs and magnets and compasses and mirrors, but uh, I really have to blame it on my maternal great-grandmother because she gave my, me, uh, before I was born, at my baby shower, a music box. And so I grew up with that. And eventually, I think my other, my not great-grandmother, but her daughter realized how much I loved that. And because she goes to post-holiday inventory sales, she would always buy me these kitschy holiday music boxes. <laughs> and I ended up um, discarding the top of them and just keeping the mechanism. And so for me, uh, you know, I, I never told my grandma that. <laughs> so just, hopefully my grandma never sees this, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, loved the, I loved the music and I loved the rules that made the thing work. And um, basically, I just thought that those things made a lot more sense than a lot of other stuff in the world at that time. And so I was very drawn to them and ended up going into school for philosophy and at the same time was working as a jeweler. And I studied metaphysics and epistemology in school and ended up learning about the automata that were made as kind of these apparatuses to study philosophical problems in the past, and I was fascinated by that. So kind of went down a rabbit hole and just kept going. <laughs> so you, you quit being a philosopher, well, at least a formal philosopher, and then started going to clockmaking school? Uh, yes, I had gotten accepted to a dual PhD master's program and kind of just bailed <laughs> and packed what fit in my car and drove to Seattle and enrolled in watchmaking school. And. I mean, are there other people that, I mean, I know you showed some of the, um, uh, some of your mentors, but what is your kind of day-to-day -day and what is the, who's your competition in the world? Like, so somebody has a broken automata and their, their list of people to send this to is probably fairly short. Um, either it's a museum conservator, which is 
within a museum, which I assume aren't really out for public hire, or it's you, are there others, and is there an ecosystem of this? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, definitely some talented people in Europe. Um, there's, I would say, you know, the, the workshop that I worked in at Museum Spielklok in the Netherlands would be a, uh, they actually do outside work, so I'm just advertising for them now. <laughs> if, you, if you would like to send an object to them, you can contact uh, Martin Paris. Um, and, and is that what happens for the most part? Somebody has a thing, I mean, you showed a few of these things that are, someone maybe gets them an auction or finds them in their grandparents' attic and then they try yeah. to make it go? I mean, it, it just depends. A lot of times my clients are, you know, it's a family person. They've got the one thing that's very valuable to them and they just want to see it working and see it treated properly. Uh, so then they find me or someone like me. And uh, otherwise, mostly it's collectors who have several things and they just want the thing to work <laughs> and then they want to put it back in their vault. Um, you know, or it's, a, or it's a museum that has something special that's going to go on display. And I was especially intrigued by the testing machine you built for the, the smoking machine. When we're working on the, um, the clock uh, for long now, one of the most difficult things to do is to understand how long it's going to, like, will it operate for... Um, the number of cycles. In our case, you know, it's, uh, if, it, if it's a thing that operates once a day, that's 3.65 million cycles that we want to test it for. Um, but we also don't want to accelerate the testing too fast because then it, it's not realistic to the, the heat that might generate and things like that. Do you, was that the first thing like that that you built or do you build other testing apparatus to figure these things out? Um, I mean, that was the first thing that was that complicated. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly you make, like, for example, that test barrel in that ship, um, that was literally just to test the shapes of pins, and that actually went right into the mechanism. So it wasn't something that was a, a separate apparatus. But um, unfortunately, I don't have enough time and finances to build a smoking apparatus or something of the like for every machine that I get. So, yeah, I would love to, but... Right, yeah. Um, and I was intrigued by, as, as, I mean, when we went over this beforehand and as well as tonight, that a lot of automata kind of has this history of secret magic that's a kind of this deception as well as um, some actual deceptions that were like that, that, the not pooping duck um, or the, you know, the mechanical Turk is the other famous example the of the player. automata that didn't work, yeah. um, that was a, a fake. And I, I'm curious as to where do you think this comes from in our in our history of why, why, why do we want the mechanical things to fool us? I think there's something really nice about being fooled. Um, you know, I think on my deathbed, I just hope there's a magician. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and you continue to work with magicians? On oh yeah, mechanical um, things? making things for magicians or fixing magic tricks is really fun, you know. It's, um, I think there's something so special about the fact that it's all self-contained. You know, there's not this uh, hidden element of electricity or pre-program. I mean, certainly there are pre-programs, but it's all mechanical. It's all handmade. And there's something kind of magical just about that. Cool. And I, I also had one uh, very specific question before we get to audience questions. Um, and that is, do you know what, why the Apollo timer was six minutes and six seconds? What was the significance of that? You know, I wish I did know that. <laughs> I've, I've wondered that myself. No, and I don't know if you saw the Apollo 11 documentary, which was excellent. If you didn't see it, highly recommend it. But they didn't even mention it. I was like, where's horology, folks? Actually, Creon, who worked at NASA for a long time and turned me onto the book Digital Apollo, I know, I, I bet you it's covered in that book and I'm not remembering. It's one of my favorite 
Yeah, all right. So yeah, there's a great book called Digital Apollo, which was also shows you the, all this amazing history of how human-computer interface was kind of first discovered in the Apollo era that we still, we still go by today, a lot of that stuff. So I bet it has that answer to it. So I'll, I'll look it up and post it. Um, but I think this, I mean, the, the, the crossover to, um, to the defense industry um, and that, you know, this, these fail-safes for systems that even now, my understanding is that even now the, the nuclear arsenal is air-gapped and even electronic gapped by kind of mechanical maze systems so that uh, they can't be gamed um, by electronic means is an interesting last holdout for, uh, for the mechanical world of, uh, of computers in a way. I don't think it can be replaced. Yeah. Does anybody else have any questions? Creon? Yeah, I wondered if you have investigated or have any thoughts on um, things like Pascal and Conrad Zeus and Charles Babbage and sort of the whole connection between these mechanical uh, automata, if you will, and the world of computing, which a lot of people are here in, because there again, as with physics and, and ocean transport, these mechanical devices kind of lie at the foundation of modern computing. So, what exactly was your question? Just my thoughts? <laughs> have, have you, do you have any just thoughts on mechanical computing and just, uh, its relation to the clocks and its relation to the modern world? So, re relations of, sorry, just for the uh, non-live audience, uh, relation of computing and clock making to um, our current history of computing, or current state of computing. Right, the first computers were all mechanical. Well, um, I think that's why I used the example of the rover, right? So um, the fact that we are actually relying on these early mechanical computing systems to solve rocket, you know, space problems today, because we don't have another way to solve them. Um, you know, they're actually building a Venus chamber with which to put a mechanical device in because it won't operate on Earth conditions. So they actually have to build something and test it in this other space to see if it works. Um, I, don't know. I think that you know we're going to end up using these types of mechanisms because they can't be replaced. It's something that can't really be. Um, it's a stopgap between electronics and satellites and artificial intelligence. You know, it's this last all tactile holdout that we craft individually each component. And this is also a reason why we um, we made the 10,000-year clock mechanical. Because if you you know if you found an electronic clock that's not working, hasn't been working for a thousand years, it's very difficult to reverse engineer it where kind of these objects that you find, you have some chance of, of reverse engineering them and understanding at least the majority of how they worked. Um, if you have a question, actually, we have a mic. Oh, going around, yeah. Uh, I have two <clears throat> similar related questions. You can do both or either. Um, does null gravity affect how mechanical watches operate? Um, like did Neil Armstrong's watch performed differently in space? Well, I think um, they did a lot of test flights with these to see how they would actually operate in space. And it, I mean, they were very reliable. But I do know that when NASA, in later missions, they had done some uh, detonation tests on the moon, uh, there was a problem with the mechanical apparatus, like the, the balance over banking. So um, they ended up, Charles Sauter, who was an engineer, ended up basically, it, adjusting the escapement so that you wouldn't have overbanking on the lunar surface anymore. 
And how do very old clocks like the one in Prague that lived through world wars survive? Well, I think it, it didn't really. So um, the, the oldest- People like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but a lot of it's new. So um, I think uh, it was badly damaged and then it, parts were rebuilt in the 1600s. But I, I think the oldest part is you know, from 1410, but very little, 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 little of it is from that, that period. So it's just been you know, rebuilt and added on over time. Yeah, that clock that you showed, the Salisbury Cathedral Tower clock, um, is, is on the, the mezzanine above where the first prototype of our clock is in the making of the modern world thing. And every hour when we were installing it, you'd, they would, you'd hit, it was an hour, maybe it was at noon, they would run it. Um, but it's amazing that they were still running this you know, clock that was so old. Um, but they, they had a whole machine shop of people downstairs that were also maintaining various wear surfaces and keeping it going. That's great. That's the way it should be. <laughs> Uh, Mike Hi. In the back. Yeah, um, I was hoping you could explain the function of a turning and what this beautiful design on the chalkboard is and how that plays out in the mechanisms that you're talking about. Okay, well that's a long story, but yes. <laughs> okay, so um, this is called ornamental turning or engine turning, which uh, basically these shapes are generated through sine waves. Did you need to ask that question, or can I just? Okay, so basically the the sine wave, or the waveform, is, is phased or varied. And the way that you phase or vary the waveform will shift the orientation of the pattern or the wave. So if you uh, think about a sine wave and you phase that by 180 degrees, you get the, the mirror opposite. So you get these two lines dancing together. Uh, if you phase it gradually a little bit in one direction, and then you go back, and then you go back, and then you go back, you get this pattern. So this is kind of a little zigzag pattern. But each line, um, as it's you know, shown here, is the same waveform repeated. So it's not changed. It's just moved a little bit. Uh, and this was uh, basically the ancestor to ornamental turning, which was the practice of kings and sovereigns to commune with God in a way. So uh, the idea was that if the world was created based on harmonic and mathematical principles, uh, this was evidence that God was in nature through mathematical perfect ratios, so uh, like the Fibonacci sequence or the Nautilus shell. So these were observable mathematical principles in nature, which could then be translated to turning on a machine through these sine waves and phasing the wave through waveforms. And if done properly, um, you would get these beautiful ivory towers that the kings would build. So over time, basically, it changed from a tool of kings to commune with God to a tools of craftsmen to make things for kings to something that went obsolete basically after World War II. Yeah, you can imagine our president spending that much time making them. <laughs> he'd, probably, he'd be a better, a better president, I'm sure. So I'm in love with your little snail rabbit. And when we were talking earlier, you said that you had 12 that you wanted to build from the bestiaries. And I'm wondering which would you most want to build and why? Oh, so there's 10. I would love to do 12, but I feel like 10 is pushing it as far as my time constraints. Um, but probably the one I really want to do next is the uh, stag automaton. Um, so I started this piece. This is a, a very strange mashup of a, of a stag, right? So when they would see the, the stag in the forest, they actually imagined that it had wings and uh, had this crucifix suspended between its antlers. So um, why do I want to make that one next? I guess because it's, um, 
I'm going to feather it. <laughs> It'll have lots of beautiful little feathers. Um, so I'm really looking forward to actually the process of making this piece. Um, but it was the first one that I wanted to make. I think because um, I thought that it was really the most elegant of all of the ones inside the bestiary, because a lot of the other ones are really weird. <laughs> do, do, with these projects, do you take commissions, or do these are the things you do on your own time? Well, I would take commissions, but th this particular series is just something that I thought, you know, these are really interesting examples of human vulnerability and projection of our own feelings on the natural world, and they've never really been animated, so how interesting would it be to actually animate these strange things when a lot of our compulsion behind animating things was also a projection of our vulnerabilities about, you know, not wanting to... Uh, basically have something that would live on after us, right? So get over our own mortality. Can you speak a little bit about um, whether you use contemporary tools, at least in your own practice? Do you use CAD or are you mostly pencil CADing it? How, how, do, how do you create, you know, how do you move into that space and what does it look like compared to being a conservator and the tools you're allowed there? Well, I think, um, for me, I've been criticized for being too traditional. Um, there are, I think, things about my practice and uh, what I feel one of the most valuable parts of this is, is the fact that not only are these objects valuable, but the skills needed to preserve them are. So if anything, the skills are more critically endangered than the objects at this point. So as long as I continue to practice those skills, um, I'm still preserving my, my art form. If I move over to rely on something like um, CNC, I have to stop and wonder if I'm actually the one making the object or if the machine is making the object. So at a certain point, I think you know, you're assisting the machine instead of having the machine assist you. So you hand draw all your things? I do. <laughs> Badly. I wouldn't say that I'm a great uh, draftsman, but yes, I struggle Very through cool. that. Yeah, where's, our, where's the mic? So I have a question. When you re-fetter those birds, do you use like synthetic fetter or do you actually go out and like get real fetter and then the color of it, things like that? Like, can you tell a little bit more details of that? Yeah, so for the feathers, um, you know, obviously these are real bird feathers. And when these things were made, they were made to feather like little jewels or gemstones. They actually wanted to have this glittering effect. So these were feathered using real hummingbird feathers. Um, obviously, that's not something I can just go out and get. <laughs> and I'm not out there with a net <laughs> catching hummingbirds. Um, but, you know, if I, if I have to re-feather, I generally try to preserve as many of the original feathers as possible and use feathers that are um, going to be historically accurate where I can. So um, if I'm able to secure some, you know, Victorian taxidermy feathers, in that case, I would, you know, use some of those to supplement the original. Um, if it's a later bird and dyed feathers are used, then I would use feathers that were dyed. It just depends on what era. All right, we're going to wrap up with the last couple of questions. Yeah, um, you touched briefly on the antikythera mechanism. Uh, it was a sort of a two-part question. Could you speak a little more about it? And three-part question. Um, uh, has anybody figured out what it does? And the third part of the question, how would you figure out what it does? It was underwater for a long time, and it looks like it's kind of rusted into one piece. That's all very true. I think they um, x-rayed it 
So um, they were able to kind of figure out from the x-rays what was there, what should have been there. Um, so that gave us kind of a basis for what that mechanism looked like. Uh, but as far as what it does, it's, a, it's basically an analog. For those of you who don't know, this was a mechanism that was 2,000 years old, found at the bottom of the, uh, of the Mediterranean, um, and is set back what we now know as modern kind of clockwork and horology and, and astronomical machines. Um, but it was very rusted and oxidized, and so it, was, uh, it took a very long time to figure out. And I think for the longest time, it just sat basically in a box. And they were like, oh, whatever. <laughs> and somebody was like, wait a minute, this thing is important. Um, but it's, a, it's an analog uh, calculator. I think it's a calendar, actually, an astronomical calendar. And um, basically, they created a replica of it. They have that, I believe, at the Smithsonian. So you can actually go see it. Uh, but you know, this was not a super well-made object, but I, what I think, if anything, it's evidence for the fact that we actually had a lot of these automata and calculators and machines that we hear about in manuscripts. So the Antikythera mechanism is actually proof that we were making complicated machines, you know, in the time of the Greeks. So we have a lot of evidence of these really interesting pieces that were part of the pleasure gardens and palaces of the Greeks with moving figures and automata, pneumatics, hydraulics, and this proves that these things were actually being made. Well, I was, I was especially, um, took a lot of heart when I found out that that peacock automata took 15 years, because um, that's about how long I'm into making the current clock project. Um, so um, I wanted to thank you and um, give you a uh, Long Now Challenge coin. Yeah. Um, and um, please give her a round of applause. Uh, If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.